Welcome, folks, once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Now, we get on the air uh, because of the heroic efforts of two people. One is Alan Dempsey, uh, the multi-talented engineer. And the other is Andrew Herdliska, who produces this show each weekend for us. Now, Dr. Philip Carey joins us. He's at Eastern University in the suburbs of Philadelphia, scholar in residence in the Templeton Honors College. Phil, welcome to Orlando. How are you doing? Oh, just fine. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. And Phil, I'm an old uh, Philadelphian. My, that's where my roots are. And I bet you're beginning to see some yellow daffodils up your way and a little forsythia. Uh, perhaps some uh, yeah, out of my window right now. Perhaps some, lovely. perhaps some dogwood. Uh, not yet. Not yet. Okay, but spring spring is coming, and we're sending on it up from Florida, Phil. So well, thank you. Okay, you can have more of the warmth than we need, but uh, that's all right. Tell me about Eastern University. It's a small Christian college just in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, originally, it was Baptist, and now it's sort of broadly evangelical. Um, and we have Christians of all sorts uh, on the faculty. Um, students don't have to be Christian, but uh, you know, they're much happier there if they're Christian because it's, it's a very Christian atmosphere. Faith, and we get to teach all things in light of the faith of Christ. Where does Tony Campolo fit in in the history of Eastern University? Uh, he's a very important person for us. Um, his office is actually just down the hall from mine. Um, he is a, was a sociology professor. He's retired now. Um, and he is, well, sort of a, an evangelist as well as a social activist at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a combination that's typical of Eastern University. We've got a lot of social activism. We've got a lot of evangelism. Phil, I want you to uh, uh, do some teaching for us here. Why the gospel is good news. Yes, absolutely. Including for Christians who are worried about whether their lives are Christian enough, whether they're really being transformed enough. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. can you talk to us about that? Sure. It's something I talked with my students about for about 10 years and then um I was talking about it so much that I put it into a book. Mm. Uh Good News for Anxious Christians. The gospel is good news because it's about Christ. <laughs> and Christians are anxious because so many Christians want to have, you know, a successful, transformed Christian life, and sometimes it doesn't go the way we expect, and oftentimes we don't worry that we don't meet God's expectations. Um, We can see that there's still sin in our lives, and um, that we are not living up to our confession of faith, and that's why it's good news that the gospel is all about Christ and what He does, rather than about us and what we do to transform our lives because Christ does all things well, and therefore the gospel can be fully and fundamentally and purely good news. And when you hang on to the gospel, you hang on to what really changes your life, which is Christ Jesus himself. Phil, why is sin such an unpopular topic? Uh, uh, How often do we like admitting that we have sinned against someone? Uh, now, how often do we like admitting that we're sinners? Um, although it's, it's good for us to do that. I mean, 
if you, if you have a, a liturgy in your church, you'll probably have a confession of sin every Sunday. And that's really good for you. Um, it, it sort of puts you in your place as the kind of person on whom God has mercy. Because God only has mercy on sinners. So, so, so when, you, when you recognize that, you get to, to put yourself in the story of the Gospel. Because the Gospel is, is Christ's story, but we're part of blood to save sinners, like you and me. Um, so it's good news that we get to confess our sin. But it's hard. You know, we're, we're too proud, we're, we're not humble enough, we, we don't like to admit our failures, and we don't really like uh, being saved by somebody else. So it, it takes practice to, to remember that we're the kind of people for whom Christ died, that we're sinners. Dr. Philip Carey is with us from uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia. I want to get back to this little book that you mentioned, Good News for Anxious Christians. Yeah. What does that word anxious mean? Oh, well, it can mean a, a bunch of things. Thinking about this because I was learning a lot from Martin Luther way back in the 16th century, who was basically the founding figure of Protestantism. His anxieties made him terrified. Um, I think rather different from us, but, but some people still have this, this terror where, you know, you're worried that, that if you die tomorrow, you'll go to hell. And all sorts of people in the 16th century had that worry in a deep, deep way. And what are you going to do to save yourself if you're worried that you're going to die the next moment? Or you're, you're out in a thunderstorm. This, this actually happened to him. You're out in a thunderstorm, and the next moment, a thunderbolt might... My, my, my what are you going to do? What, what Luther ended up uh, preaching and learning and teaching to others is that there's nothing to do but hang on to Jesus Christ by faith alone. And that's all that needs to be done, because Christ does all that, to save us. Well, likewise, nowadays, um, some people are still terrified of going to hell. Others are just kind of depressed and discouraged about their Christian lives. Uh, a whole lot of people have this identity crisis, am I really a Christian? And the answer to that is not in us, it's in Christ. And that's what faith does. Right? Faith knowing that this, this is the story of, who, of what Jesus has done for us sinners. And once you get that, that puts the anxieties aside. And then, I'll say one more thing about that, it gives you a different set of anxieties. Instead of worrying about whether you're a good enough Christian, you worry about whether what you're doing is actually helping your neighbor. Because that's what, what love worries about, right? Love worries, oh, what can I do to help my neighbor? What can I do to be a good citizen? Um, it, is what I'm doing really genuinely helpful for my neighbor? That's a good worry to have. Whereas the worry, am I really Christian enough, is... is at you, um, and we want to put that one aside. Dr. Philip Carey is with us. Is We're talking about his book, actually, Good News for Anxious Christians. Phil, you mentioned hell a number of times. Yeah. In all my years going to church, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on hell. Really? I'm not, okay. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, that's, I don't know, so what, 70 years of going to church? Uh, wow. why, um, huh. why Why? are we reluctant to talk about hell, and, 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 and wh what do you picture? How do you envision it? Yeah, this is, oh, okay, this is interesting. I mean, because so much of Protestant theology of, of the wrath of God in the 16th century, everybody had that. Um, uh, Luther would speak of the terror of conscience. 
he didn't feel like he had a guilty conscience. He had a terrified conscience because he was terrified of the wrath of God. Now, um, Luther's very instructive about this, and I think we can learn from him today. He wasn't terrified of fire and brimstone. He was terrified of God's accusation. Uh, for Luther, it was always about the Word. And the Gospel is a comforting and kind word from God. But he was terrified of what might happen if God said, Depart from me. I never knew you. For a moment, God saying that to you. I think that's the very essence of hell, is God saying, I want nothing to do with you. I created you, and I made you good, and you messed up your life, and just get out of here and be gone. Mm. Right? right? It's terrifying, and much more terrifying than fire and brimstone, I think. Um, oh, here's a, a, a parable I've told sometimes. Imagine you're a little kid, and um, you, you have a little sister, and you push her down the stairs, and she, she falls down the stairs, and she breaks her leg. Right? Now, you're going to be afraid to face your father after that. But... Are you really afraid of a spanking? No. Father will say, looking at you, and say, you're afraid that your father's going to look at you and say, "You are not my son. You are not part of this family. You, you are. You, yes, I, I wish you were gone." Mm. That's much more terrifying, right? Um, and the gospel says, "This is not what God is going to say to you, because God has invested the blood of His own Son in saying something different." My guest is uh, Dr. Philip Carey from Eastern University in the suburbs of Philadelphia. We've got another segment with Phil. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. In Orlando, we'll be right back. Dr. Philip Carey is our guest uh, from the suburbs of Philadelphia Phil, the next topic I want you to get into for us is why the gospel is good news with the power to save us simply because we believe it by faith alone. Can, can you dig into that for us? Right. Um, that's, again, something at the heart of Protestant theology ever since Martin Luther. John Calvin agrees. John Wesley agrees. The whole Protestant tradition will, will, will hang on to this notion that we're saved by faith alone. Now, what does that mean, right? It's not like, oh, I believe I'm saved, therefore I'm saved, because just believing it makes it so. Uh-uh. Um, what faith is it hangs on to Jesus Christ by trusting his word. The, the word has the power to save us because it's the word of the gospel which promises something. At the heart of the gospel is a promise. The whole gospel is a story. It's the story of Jesus Christ and what he does for us. And at the heart of that story is Jesus making promises to us, like, Lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. Um, this kind of promise is Christ promising himself to us. And the way we receive Christ is simply by believing that he's going to keep his promise. And simply by believing means by faith alone. You don't make... Right? You simply believe that he's going to be true to his word. And that's all you need to do, uh, is, is acknowledge the truth of God in his promises. Phil, I want you to talk about your most recent book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology. And, yeah. and, and, and the theology of Martin Luther, the founder of Protestant theology, 
uh, dig into that for us. And why is it, Phil, that we just seemingly can't get enough of Martin Luther? <laughs> right. I can't. Um, right. So, as a matter of fact, I've already been digging into that book because what we've been talking about has been the, the theme of that bit more scholarly than the, the book about good news for anxious Christians, which is written for a very broad audience. Uh, if you're a theology nerd, I hope you'll really like this book on the meaning of Protestant theology, where I dig deep into Luther. Why can we not get enough of him? Uh, it's because, I think, Luther, more than anyone else, makes a real clear distinction between gospel and law. And the law of God is a good thing. Paul tells us this in the, in the letter to Romans. But it can't save us. The law can't make us righteous. The law can't transform us. The law of God tells us what to do, and we don't do it. So we need something, uh, and it needs to, to, to work differently than law. So what God does, instead of just telling us what to do, he tells us what he's going to do. He makes a promise, and he gives us Christ and tells us the story of who Christ is. So the, the gospel is not about what we do. It's about what God has done in Christ and will do and promises to do for us in Jesus Christ to save us. And that's what we take hold of by faith alone. Phil, I want you to talk about this word theology and the history of theology. Uh, ah. what, what, what does that mean? What's that word mean? Oh, theology. From uh, two Greek words, theos meaning God and logos as in, in the beginning was the Logos, uh, which means word and reason and discourse. So, so theology is the, the word and, and reasoning and discourse about God. Uh, so, for example, if you recite a creed uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, as, as we do in my church, um, you're, you're saying who God is. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's all theology. It's all discourse about who God is. And so what Christian theology is, is this long tradition of God and receiving the gospel in words, saying, what are we saying when we say such things about God? What are we saying when we say that Christ is the only Son of God and he was crucified? Are we saying that God died on a cross? Right? Um, that's the kind of question that theology asks. And the answer is, is, is absolutely wonderful. God became so human that he died on a cross. Um, and that then becomes a basis of meditation and contemplation and prayer and worship and praise and song. So that's what theology does. It makes all of that kind of discourse possible. Phil, it seems that you are always writing. Uh, I understand you've got another writing project now, a short book on the Nicene Creed, which which you believe, I think, is the summary of the Gospel. Uh, Absolutely. What is the Nicene Creed? What does that mean? Okay. Uh, right. So it, it is a summary of the Gospel. That's something else I learned from Luther, because it's so much about what God is and who God is and what He's done. It's a creed that was uh, composed in the 4th century based on earlier creeds. Now, a creed uh, originally meant what you would say when you were baptized. So if you're baptized as an adult, um, you would be standing in a pool of water, and the person baptizing you asks you, do you believe in God the Father? And you say, I believe. And then you're dumped. And then you're asked, do you believe in God, 
his only begotten son uh, who was crucified for you. You say, I believe, and you're dunked again. And then the Holy Spirit again, I believe, and you're dunked again. Well, these creeds got more and more elaborate, but they basically were all rooted in our identity as baptized Christians. And what happened in the 4th century is there was a, some false teaching that had to be corrected, and a council of teachers of the Church got together in Nicaea, near Constantinople, which is near Istanbul. And in this place called Nicaea, they produced a creed saying, this is what we believe about who God the Father is, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So I'm writing about that, um, because I think that's, you know, the story about who God is, is the Gospel. Why do you think, Phil, Phil Carey is our guest, why do you think so many Christians are confused about the Holy Spirit and the role that the Holy Spirit has in our life and who is the Holy Spirit and what should we believe about the Holy Spirit? Can you, uh, ah, can you help okay. us with that? All right. So I'm uh, in the middle of writing about the Holy Spirit on, on the in Nicene Creed, um, uh, developing from this Council of Nicaea, says that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, Together with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified, and he has spoken through the prophets. Um, so that tells several things about the Holy Spirit. He's the giver of life. Our natural life comes as a gift of God, but also our spiritual life and the, the gift of everlasting life in Christ Jesus comes to us through the Holy Spirit, through the Word, because he speaks through the prophets, both the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets of the New Testament. We know there are prophets in the New Testament. And the... Um, whenever anybody in the book of Acts is filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a phrase that gets used a lot, the next thing they do is they talk, they speak, right? because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Um, even John the Baptist in the womb, he's kicking in the womb. Why? Because he's filled with the Spirit, and he's, he's near Jesus, because Mary is, is standing next to Elizabeth, and, and the two babies know each other. Right? That's what it is to have the Holy Spirit, is to, to have the recognition of who Christ is and be able to speak it which John the Baptist does. One more thought about that. Um, there's a passage in Ephesians where um, Paul says, let the, word, uh, with the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a parallel passage in Colossians where he says almost the same thing, except he says, be ye filled with the Spirit, with Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, basically saying the same thing in two different ways. To be filled with the Spirit as a congregation, is to have the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly, in you, plural, right? So the, the, the sign of the Holy Spirit is, is a congregation where the Word of Christ is taught and heard and sung and preached. And that's, that's the, the way to recognize the Holy Spirit in a New Testament way. Um, and you, and you, you ask me why people are confused. I think we're confused about that we believe that um, our experience is what determines reality. And we get confused because we confuse our experience with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not a code word for our experience. The Holy Spirit is God, through the Word of Christ, giving life to a congregation so that, uh, so that the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. Phil, I, I, I get the sense that you're a serious student of uh, uh, Christian uh, history and, and men from the past and 
I, I want you to put together a lunch. For, you're going to throw the lunch. <laughs> and you're going to have three uh, significant Christian leaders from uh, from way back in history. Who, who, who do you want at your lunch? Oh, who do I want at my lunch? Oh, boy. Okay. Martin, well, I guess Martin Luther will be there, right? Martin Luther will be there. Um now, uh, right, I mean, we, we do have this thing called the Lord's Supper, where, where the Lord joins us for lunch uh, well, on a be, regular basis. That, not, no problem with that. Yeah, but, but suppose we, we, we're, we're, it's not a Sunday, and we're, we're not having the Lord's Supper. Um, but yeah, Martin Luther, for sure. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, he's a guy that I, I've studied a lot. Uh, the Bishop of Hippo in Africa. Aquinas, who's a medieval theologian and probably the smartest man who ever lived. Uh, just, um, the thing about both Aquinas and, and Augustine is, is they're, they're smarter than I am, and they're, they're better Christians than I am, they're better people than I am. Um, Luther is more complicated. Um, when, Luther goes, when Luther goes wrong, he goes really wrong. Um, um, I'm not sure I'd want John Calvin. He's not, not my favorite guy. Um, maybe Wesley. Um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, mm. great theologians of the 20th century. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there's some questions I want Barth and Luther and uh, Aquinas. What, what, what are they, Phil? Oh, um, the thing about faith alone. Uh, Luther insists on faith alone. Karl Barth is a Protestant who insists on faith alone. Thomas Aquinas is not so sure. He's the great theologian of the Catholic Church. I want to hear him talk to Luther about this, um, and Augustine as well. And I want to hear them talk about sacraments. Um, I think there's a, a lot of, of important disagreement among Christians that doesn't have to divide Christians. Um, division, dividing Christians is, is a sin. We should not do this. Um, so I want the great theologians to talk to each other and help us uh, get past our divisions. Why did uh, Luther struggle so much uh, with uh, the people of the Jewish faith? Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, what, was, as, as, what was the problem? What was the problem? Yeah. Well, you know, as, as I mentioned, when Luther gets things wrong, he really gets things wrong. Mm. And he really, really got things wrong with the Jews. Um, the problem was... Um, that something changed in his life. Because early on, he wrote this beautiful little booklet called uh, Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew. And he says, Jesus is, is the natural-born son, uh, brother of the Jews. The Jews are, are Jesus' brother. Um, and we're just adopted into the family. Um, and so, you know, um, if I was a Jew, I wouldn't want to be putting up with us Christians either. But, but the Jews have been welcoming us into the family. That's roughly the, the, the view he took um, in this early uh, writing. Then something went sour. And I think what went sour is Luther's anxiety about hanging on to the Word. Hanging on to the Word should be an act of hope and confidence. But for Luther, it became an act of desperation. And uh, that is to say, he lost hope. He was worried that the Jews were going to come and take the Bible away the same Old Testament that we do, and they didn't believe that it was about Christ. They believed that it was about the Messiah, but that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. So their interpretation of the Bible denies the Christian faith, and Luther couldn't stand that. 
he, he, he wrote a book called On the Jews and Their Lies. Because, for, for, again, for Luther, it's all about words. And he's thinking that the, the lies of the Jews are trying to take Christ away from us. And that made him volcanically angry. Uh, and he wrote horrible things about them uh, and made horrible recommendations, like we should burn their synagogues, burn their books, kick them out of the country. Mm. Um, he even said, you know, it should be a, a capital crime for Jews to worship like Jews and praise God um, in, in the name of the Jewish faith. This is just so wrong. Um, so there's nothing like this in, in these other guys, Augustine and Aquinas and so on. But in Luther, you've got to deal with the fact that, that when he goes wrong, he goes really, really wrong. My guest has been Dr. Philip Carey. Boy, we've been sitting in his classroom, folks, haven't we? Uh, scholar in residence in the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University in the uh, Philadelphia area. Uh, we've got more after this. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990. And FM 101.5, the word. And uh, we've got um, another good half hour ahead of us. So we will be right back. Stay with us. Dr. Philip Carey, our guest in that first segment from Eastern University in Philadelphia. We go from Philly to Columbia, Missouri. We found Dr. Jimmy Cook there, the Allen Distinguished Chair in Orthopedic Surgery. Director of the Thompson Laboratory for Regenerative Orthopedics and Mizzou Bio Joint Center at the University of Missouri. Jimmy, I I, uh, I I don't really know what all that means, but boy, it sounds impressive. Well, thank you. I um, I love my day job. Uh, that's my day job, and I love what we are able to do then uh, away from here in the developing world. Uh, your book is called Hand Delivered Hope. What's the background of this book? It's really the story of amazing people in the developing world that we got to learn their stories, um, initially from a half. And then um, we were set on a mission, I believe by divine intervention, um, to help bring education to as many kids as we could uh, through the developing world in our lifetime. Well, Jimmy, uh, I'm going to go country by country because I'm very, very interested in what you're doing. So let let us start with Zambia. Fill us in. What's the background here? Yes, sir. So that's how we got started. And, uh, you know, that is how the book is laid out. So this will be perfect. We go country by country on the first 10 years of our adventure yes. in the developing world. And so um, Zambia was our... And uh, now infamous maybe line that I told my wife after watching a special on Jimmy Carter on 60 Minutes and his work with um, Habitat for Humanity, I said, Chrissy, this will be perfect. This is an altruistic way for us to see the world. <laughs> and boy, I didn't uh, really know the half of it, to be honest with you. And so then I said, we went to Zambia and we worked with kids. And at, at the end of that time period, we were building houses with Habitat for Humanity and at the end of that two weeks, working with the community, and especially the kids, most of whom were orphans because of malaria, HIV, civil unrest, um, I that really set us on this adventure. And I said, what's the best thing we could do for you when we go back to America? You know, how could we help most? And to be real honest with you, I thought it would be easy. I thought I would just send a care package. And I would have, you know, done the right thing and been the, you know, the, the great American helping these kids, and then they said two words. They said, we need books and tuition. 
and I say it's the best punch in the gut I ever had because it set us on this mission to build schools. And from those two words, we had the opportunity then to go to Rwanda. So what I thought was going to be a one-time school build for a school that was devastated by the gen really the catalyst for the development aid organization focused on education um, that we started, which is called Be the Change Volunteers. And that's really the story of Hand Delivered Hope. Now tell us about R- Rwanda. So Rwanda, at the, at the Zambia Project, our team leader for that, uh, said he had a connection to Rwanda through three women that had escaped the genocide. And, you know, the, the tragic atrocity, I mean, to me still unimaginable story of seeing your family murdered. Um, and the, the other school, their elementary school that they went to, was one of the places that um, people brought others in, mostly women and children, under the guise of safety because, you know, churches and schools sounded safe. And they said this would be a good place to hide, and it was actually just a very efficient way to carry out a genocide. And so their elementary school, which really gave them the opportunity to save their lives, is what they say, because they're, the reason they weren't in Rwanda um, during the height of the genocide is that they had actually had educational opportunities in the United States and, and their futures to education at their elementary school. And so that was a school that um, had had, you know, the genocide carried out within it. And they said, we've got to rebuild that school. That's what's going to help Rwanda move forward and really um, pave the way to their kids' futures and recovery for, you know, everything that happened. And so we went and we went to that school and walked in and it looked like a war bunker. And there were still bullet holes in the walls more than 10 years later. But then the community stepped in, and just like those kids in Zambia, they knew that education was the key to their future. Now I will that school. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, Dr. Jimmy Cook is our guest. Hand Delivered Hope, the name of the book. Uh, Tell us about Cambodia next. Yeah. So Cambodia was great. So we, we, um, in Rwanda, we decided we needed to do this our whole lives. And so uh, we got the opportunity, the next school, the next project was in Cambodia. And it was really neat because um, it ended up that we needed to build a floating learning center for Vietnamese people living in Cambodia because they weren't allowed to own land. And so that was really cool because it was just such a unique build. And we learned so much about um, culturally appropriately, culturally appropriate ways to um, – so, you know, the color of the school was really important there the way that education could be delivered um, to the kids, and then really combining the, the aspects of education and religion and vocational training and literacy training um, really came to light there, and we learned so much about that. And, and it was really cool because in each of these stories, you'll read in the book, at each of these stories there's a person behind it, right? There's an individual that we made connections with, and we're really just telling their stories. And in this one, Rachana, um, you know, takes a little spark a little flip of a switch and you'll find out that she goes on to nursing her entire floating village um, by inspiring others and supporting others in their uh, educational futures. Now we're going to talk about Papua New Guinea, Jimmy. (laughs) 
Yes, sir. And uh, I always say it's um, everything you would expect out of National Geographic and more. Mm. Um, and so it's just really neat. This was actually the um, first project where um, I was solely responsible for all parts of it. We had worked initially with the people that, um, that we went on the Habitat for Humanity build on. And so this is where we were, my wife and I, Christy, were kind of taken over and uh, right away. <laughs> and um, again, just amazing tribal culture and the, the experience with just that is incredible. But then again, to see the community just dive in and engage into education because they knew that was the future for their kids. And so we went from the first shovel full of dirt to three finished classrooms with uh, desks chalkboards painted beautifully ready for kids to start to learn with teachers that come in and have the resources they need to teach the kids. We went from that, uh, that whole process in nine days because of the community. They completely engaged in everything to, to just um, make that um, evident to the audience today as I was walking up the hill carrying some rocks and this woman was walking up the hill um, and she passed me, and she had way more than I did working on the foundation and went up and dumped her rocks in the foundation. I finally caught up with her. I'm a little bit embarrassed because she was doing so much more than me. And I said, wow, thank you for working so hard. You know, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, wh why, why are you so engaged in this? And she, in very broken English, but with the biggest smile on her face, she said, my kid's going to school here. Mm. And to me, that just said it all, right? Because that is why, that, that is the hope that for a future is why they will work so hard, take ownership, and make it sustainable. And that's really what is the main thing we have to ensure. But that's what has also made it so successful. And we always say, we, we don't, you know, do this. These are not our schools. We're not giving them anything. We're just helping flip one switch that then they take so much farther than we can ever imagine because of, of that hope and because of that future that, that they can create for their kids in a way that works for them. My guest <clears throat> is uh, Dr. Jimmy Cook. He's in Columbia, Missouri at the University of Missouri. And uh, we're talking about his book, Hand Delivered Hope. Well, Jimmy, we've arrived now in South Africa. Fill us in. Yeah, this will always be so special to me. Um, and we actually met our adopted son on this build. We also, before that, though, it was really special because we experienced some true miracles. And, and I'll just tee that one up, and hopefully that uh, intrigues your audience to get the book and read the whole story. But I promise you, you will see some true miracles, read about some true miracles that happened. And then one of them was meeting our, uh, who would become our adopted son, Pomoto. And, um, of the book is, um, it's the cover. It's the front cover because that tells the story of Pomoto. That's his uh, picture. And he was a kid we met on that build um, that literally grew up in a mud hut. No one in his village had ever been past second grade, but he made it to high school. We met him, and the, the short story is um, we just got to know him. And, and growing up in a mud hut in very remote South Africa, when I asked him what his dream was, he said, I want to be a photojournalist. Mm. And I couldn't even believe that he knew what that was. But then when I said, why? He said, because I see those in magazines. And there's a picture from a photojournalist. And that picture tells him. 
And so I think he did that with the front cover of the book. Um, of the book. Unfortunately, we lost him at 23 years of age, right after he graduated from university. Really? With a degree in photojournalism. And again, his, his picture that he took adorns the front cover of our book. And so um, it was a beautiful build. It was, you know, everything was, went well with it. Um, although despite we had some logistical things that uh, you'll read about in terms of those are the miracles that we saw. And then the miracle of meeting Pomoto, bringing him back to the U.S. Uh, to live with us, and then getting him back to um, South Africa to go to university. And then he, he went from being one of the um, community that we helped to one of what we call changers. And changers are our volunteers that go and hand-deliver hope to other villages. So he went with us to multiple village to then hand-deliver hope um, that he had received and really made the most of. Jimmy Cook is with us. Now I want you to talk about Nepal. Yeah, <laughs> Nepal is a lesson learner. Um, so, you know, uh, failure is not fatal, and thankfully. And um, so that was one of the trips where we did a lot of things wrong and learned a lot of things. Fortunately, you know, not with uh, any um, irreversible or life-threatening situations, although maybe some were close on that particular build. Um, but we, but it was important for our organization, and it's a beautiful place in the world, and we did end up, you know, making that um, project sustainable. And we, again, learned a lot of lessons about uh, how to set up a project appropriately, again, how to do things culturally appropriately so it will be sustainable, um, and make sure that we're, you know, really listening to the community about what they need and what will move forward and not, you know, kind of imposing or invoking our ideas or our curriculum. Or our... That doesn't work. It doesn't work in the short term or the long term. And so, again, again, I feel really blessed that we were able to salvage it and that we learned lessons. I still think the hard way, but maybe that was a little bit more permanent then in terms of implementing them. Jimmy Cook is with us. You didn't. You weren't tempted to um, to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> no, but we did uh, take an amazing plane ride, and which is awe inspiring. And I do highly recommend that um, when you go. Yeah, um, that that's not on my bucket list, um, but but seeing it was awesome. Doctor Jimmy Cook is with us from Columbia, Missouri. Now I want you to talk to us about Ethiopia. So Ethiopia. Um, I'd say what's, what's really interesting to me uh, about all the countries I've been to is um, there are very few where the, the geography, the surroundings are totally different than something you've already seen. But Ethiopia was one of them. Um, I, I'd say it was like um, a combination of roadrunner all combined into one. And so it was a really interesting project. Again, just the culture that you experienced there is incredible. And this was a special build as well, too, because it was in honor of one of the people that we had worked with in the past with Habitat for Humanity. And it was a library in his honor. And that was the first time we had built a library um, with the community. And again, we just saw how that can really um, shift things in terms of resources and capabilities um, for a community to then do with those resources what they think is best for their 
And so it was a great experience. The only problem with that one was I actually uh, really had a major back problem. I blew out a disc in that one. Mm. And so that was, uh, yeah, that was a little bit of a tough one. I had to come home early from that build. And um, that, that's part of the, that story in the book that um, is it's pretty comical. So I do try and um, put in some humor at my own expense uh, as we tell the stories of these amazing world changers in the developing world. Dr. Jimmy Cook is with us. We've got another segment with Jimmy. Stay with us. We're talking about his book, Hand Delivered Hope. Here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, and you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, We're back after this. Well, folks, we're uh, having a wonderful discussion with Dr. Jimmy Cook, author of Hand Delivered Hope. He's in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, Jimmy, we've arrived at this nation, Malawi. And I got to tell you, Jimmy, I don't know where it is. I don't know anything about this country. Tell us. Please. Um, uh, Malawi is called the heart of Af- the warm heart of Africa um, by Malawians, and I believe that that's true. We've had a great experience in Malawi and done um, uh, six projects there over uh, the time period that we talk about in the book. And, um, again, really unique, um, very culturally um, rich. And um, some of that, um, of course, very comforting. But the one uh, funny story we tell in, the, in that chapter of Malawi is that um, one of the cultural things that they really love to share with you are whole mice on a stick. And so uh, we start off that chapter a little bit with talking about uh, how I had to politely avoid my whole American team eating dried mice on a stick. Um, and then still build the relationship so that we could really have the engagement of the community that's so important uh, to our mission and to the sustainability of the project. Well, that was neat, too, because that's where we got connected to two of our longtime changers who actually are now uh, full-time working with Be the Change, our, our development aid organization. And their story and their connection that you'll read in the book is how we... we tears. And um, a little bit of how uh, we, we kind of avoided some of the um, pitfalls and issues that we had previously come across in some of the other countries is really told, told in that book. And then, yeah, the Malawian people are amazing. Um, you get to learn about Sam, my man, who was a kid who, who suffered from polio, but never let that stop him and uh, just became a hero to me. And he has gone on, again, from a very remote area um, and limited resources and education, but then just to a little bit of infrastructure, a little bit, and a whole bunch of hope. He went through university, um, accomplished all of his dreams, and is now leading a community um, that we partnered with from the start. So again, it's really kind of a, a full story of what we always hope for, and each time we get to see come to fruition. And you know, as we know, that starts a ripple effect that can change the world, really. Jimmy, we've now landed in India. Tell us. Yeah, India was really special because we got to see um, really two projects over time in and, and both parts of that country, so the very far south and the very far north. And it was um, a really beautiful experience because we, we just love and of hope and how just sharing and being open um, to others was really important. The one in the South down in Kerala was actually for a a school for kids with special needs. 
And that was the first one we had done for kids with special needs. And, and um, it was just amazing because, again, we had kind of thought, you know, we understood how important education opportunities were, but we didn't really understand that you really got to um, show that again for everyone in the community and how powerful that can be in changing a mindset, our own mindset and the community's mindset. Because if these people are coming all this way to help with the kids with special and they can contribute, and their education is important. And so it really shifted our hearts, to be honest with you. And then as you'll read in the book, it really shifted that community's approach to their own kids and their own kids' education, which was a beautiful thing. And then up north, it was really neat as well, too, because it was a, a really neat process of a, of a kind of a whole campus plan um, that went from literally just um, buying a piece of land uh, for the community bought that piece of land, to everyone engaging. And now this is a beautiful three-story, um, hundreds of kids, full school with on-site teachers and, and recreation and playgrounds that all three major religions come together in to send their kids to school, which is unheard of anywhere else, really, in that country. And so, again, it just shows the power of education and how if we just um, get rid of those barriers um, through education, we can really make a difference way beyond what just a school will do. And so that was a really a great and, and really um, encouraging, but also learning experience of how we can leverage education for much greater things in the community and the world. Now, I want you uh, to tell us about Kenya, Jimmy. Yeah, <laughs> Kenya is the hardest for me because um, I wasn't on that project. Um, and it was the first one where I uh, sent Grant, who you'll read about, who's become an amazing leader for our organization. Um, he's, he's just an incredible guy, an incredible leader, and has brought so much to our organization. But that was his first project as a team leader. And to be really frank and short with you, you need to read about it, but it was a disaster. And... Um, that was our second huge learning experience, kind of different ways. So um, ho- hopefully, you know, we weren't repeating the mistakes. And fortunately, we got the team out of there. Um, everybody was safe at the end of the day. And most of the people have stuck with me to change, <laughs> which I appreciate a lot. And, and most importantly, Grant has stuck with me to change and become our director of change. And, um, again, we definitely have applied those lessons. But that's our only project that wasn't sustainable. Um, we made so many mistakes from the heart because um, I like the quote, and, and I apologize, I, I don't know who to attribute it to, but I like the quote is that you have to have the um, heart of a mission with the brain of a business. And that's where we kind of learned that is that you to not make as many mistakes. And now I think we do that pretty well. Tell us about Guatemala. Guatemala was amazing because we had learned, um, like we just talked about in southern India, about how neat it is and how powerful it can be to help out uh, kids with special needs. And so we also then were learning about how it's not just, you know, bricks and mortar, and it's not just classrooms. So what really advances education include toilets, include uh, safety and security, include playgrounds and recreation. And so all of those resources actually directly connect to furthering their education, uh, jobs, 
which is really what moves the poverty needle. And so we, we went there and did both classrooms and a recreation area, playground, and enrichment items for kids with special needs. And you'll read about in the book that it was really, again, a, really similar to Rwanda in that, that is just an uh, incredibly um, emotional experience because um, there's this place in Chichicastanango where we went in Guatemala where because of, you know, survival, because of religion, because of other aspects, um, kids with disabilities are often literally discarded. So there's this place called the hill where infants with disabilities are often literally discarded. And so those parents that went against that, all the cultural, religious, stigmatizing uh, hurdles to raise and keep a kid with special needs, um, found this place, the school in Chichicastanango, and um, we're really trying to scratch out an education for them. And so we were able to come in and partner with them and help them, we say, avoid the hill and show that their kids are valuable, they can contribute, and they deserve the resources and the opportunity of education just like everyone else. And it's, it's been amazing. They've been so sustainable now, are doing incredible things. They're actually part of sustainability, so they uh, make items that then the school sells to uh, resource themselves over time, and they're very valuable. And now it's just been a whole different stereotype that, again, has changed a community against really powerful taboos. In closing, we've got less than a minute, Jimmy. Uh, tell us about Peru. Peru is a beautiful place right on the Amazon. And, um, again, a really neat situation because it was a whole campus solution that is amazing partnership with the kids' futures. And, again, we went for a, from nothing um, to a whole high school campus with kids now graduating and getting jobs and um, contributing to their community in a full circle approach that has just been a wonderful kind of, um, you know, crowning achievement of Be the Change. So it's nice to um, end with that before the full circle of coming back to Rwanda and seeing what they had done. Again, another full circle that just brought everything to a really wonderful closure for those first 10 years. Dr. Jimmy Cook has been our guest talking about his book, Hand Delivered Hope. We've got a wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Well, folks, thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Dr. Jimmy Cook first, uh, or second, he came after Dr. Philip Carey. We had two doctors, one in Philadelphia, one in Columbia, Missouri. I do want to talk to you for a minute. We're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. And you can be a big help. We have a website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. Just go up there and and just check in. Say, yes, good idea. I'd love to see Major League Baseball in Orlando, and uh, I'm willing to help. So uh, that would be wonderful, orlandodreamers.com. Well, we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando, and you'll be better off for it. See you next weekend.